This is the California Slap Law Podcast, Episode 8. Welcome to the California Slap Law Podcast. California's slap law was a great idea, but it can be a minefield for the uninformed. To guide you through that minefield, here's your host, One from the law firm of Morrison Stone, Aaron Morris. Welcome to the eighth episode of the California Slap Law Podcast. I am Aaron Morris, a partner with the Southern California law firm of Morris & Stone. Our primary practice areas are defamation and free speech, which of course brings in anti-slap motions and motions for attorney fees. A great deal of my work comes from assisting other attorneys. They file an action and are met with an anti-slap motion and bring me in to fight that motion, assuming I agree that there is a basis to fight it. Just as often, like the case we're going to talk about today, they represent a client who's been served with a complaint and the attorney thinks it could be a slap. They bring me in to analyze the complaint to determine if it is a slap and to prosecute the anti-slap motion if it is. And finally, there are those attorneys who run afoul of the anti-slap statute and now are facing a motion for attorney's fees and they bring me in to opine on the reasonableness of the fees or to oppose the motion. If I can help in any of these ways, please feel free to call me at 714 914- Nine five four zero seven zero zero. That's seven one four nine five four zero seven hundred. Or you can reach me through the CaliforniaSlapLaw.com website. Now, there's a funny story about fee applications that I've never told here. I once prevailed on an anti-slap motion and submitted my fee application. And on this occasion, it was it was quite reasonable. It was about $12,000, which included the time I'd spent on the fee application. Uh, if any of you have done anti-slap motions, you know that's very efficient. And the reason I can do an anti-slap motion so efficiently is because I've done so many. So on my fee application, the efficiency is really already built in based on my experience. And you'll see in a, in a moment why that's important to understand that that concept. There is some authority for, and, and some judges use this as sort of a rule of thumb, that a really involved anti-slap motion could take about 50 hours to complete from beginning to end. So at a billing rate of, say, $400, that'd be a $20,000 fee application. Most courts won't even blanch at a $20,000 fee application. And as I've said, I read about cases where courts have rubber-stamped $100,000 fee applications. So here I was submitting an application for $12,000. And again, that included not only the anti-slap motion, but the motion for attorney fees itself. Now, the other side opposed my fee application, but they really didn't have any basis to do so. And all they said in their opposition was that it was was too high. The fee application was too high. Opposing counsel didn't challenge a, a single item on the invoice. He just said that it should not take an anti-slap guru like me. And that's how he referred to me as the anti-slap guru. And yes, I have since reserved that uh, domain name. He said an anti-slap guru like me should not take so long to do an anti-slap motion. Now, the judge picked up on this guru theme, and he went through my invoice item by item like no judge has ever done before. For example, and I I kid you not, I had billed 24 minutes for preparation of the notice of ruling following the anti-slap motion. The judge felt that was excessive and knocked it down to 18 minutes. So in the end, the judge knocked a couple of thousand off the amount requested, and awarded my client $10,000. Now, I did find that a little frustrating because this was the lowest fee application I'd ever seen for an anti-slap motion and motion for attorney fees, and the judge just failed to realize that it was so low because my expertise was already built in. But I'll tell you what, I, I would happily take a reduction of all of my fee applications if all of the judges went through the invoices in such detail, but I seldom see it. 
So enough of the war stories. Let's get to today's case. This is a, a real case that came into my office recently. It presents a great fact pattern, and I wanted to share it with you. It's, it's a lot like a law school exam, only this time it's on anti-slap motions. I don't, I don't think they cover that in law school yet. They really should. Of course, I'm going to greatly change the facts to protect the privacy of my client, but what follows is 100% true as to the issues presented. I'm also not going to release this episode until after I've filed the motion so opposing counsel doesn't get to see where I'm going. Now, in a recent episode of the California Slap Law podcast, I discussed a couple of decisions from this year that involved Code of Civil Procedure Section 425.17. This is the exception to the anti-slap statute, which exempts certain matters from Section 425.16. I mentioned at the time that 425.17 really doesn't come up very often in my practice, and here it is, right after I talked about that, it, it presented itself in my office. Which brings me to a quick aside about law firm marketing. I need you to put your legal side on hold for a moment and let me talk to you let me talk to your business side. I write about California's slap law at californiaslaplaw.com and that content brings me some business. And the client we're going to discuss was actually researching anti-slap in general and CCP section 425.17 in particular. Clients do some very sophisticated research and sometimes these obscure terms will actually lift you in the search engine optimization results because uh, it is such a narrow practice. And in this case, I'd never actually written about section 425.17, but in the show notes of a prior podcast, I'd mentioned that section because I discussed it in the podcast. That simple reference to section 425.17 in my show notes was enough for Google to bring that client to my website. Go to yourownlawfirm.com forward slash dumb, yourownlawfirm.com forward slash dumb to read about that situation and the power of niche marketing. The reason I call it dumb is that the article is, is entitled, Don't Dumb Down Your Articles, yourownlawfirm.com forward slash dumb. So let's get back to the case. Let's make the client an owner of a yogurt shop. Now, his business is doing very well, and he enjoys being in the yogurt business because he thinks it's a much healthier alternative to ice cream. In fact, he's the only yogurt shop in town that uses 100% organic ingredients in his yogurt. So there's this organic trade organization that allows you to designate your food as organic if you submit it to this trade organization and they approve it. If they approve it, you can then use their organic stamp of approval. Now, at great cost, the client went through the entire approval process, and he is now allowed to use the trade organization's seal of approval to signify that his yogurt is organic. Then one day, our client comes out to his car, and under the windshield wiper is a flyer from another yogurt shop advertising that this other yogurt shop also uses 100% organic ingredients. I'm going to refer to this other yogurt shop as the evil yogurt shop to keep them separate. So the flyer from the evil yogurt shop proudly displays the seal of approval from the organic trade organization. Now our client knows for a fact this is not true, so he goes over and he confronts the guy at the evil yogurt shop. The shop owner at the evil yogurt shop defends the flyer by saying that one of his yogurt flavors is organic, so in his opinion, it is completely accurate to say that he serves 100% organic yogurt. Never mind that only one of his flavors is organic. He admits that he never went through the approval process to use the organic seal of approval, but since what he is saying is true, he doesn't really see any need to go through that expensive process. And as our client leaves, he notices that the evil yogurt shop has outside seating, which he knows is a violation of the local city's zoning rules. So, 
Our client goes back to his yogurt shop and he does three things. First, he calls up the city and he he reports that zoning violation with the outside tables. He then emails the organic trade organization and he reports the violation of the use of the organic trademark. And then he makes up his own flyer and he he distributes it to cars in the neighborhood stating that Evil Yogurt Shop is lying about the yogurt being organic. And here's a key point. That flyer is anonymous. He doesn't say, come to my shop because the other shop is lying. He just says, uh, the Evil Yogurt Shop is lying about the yogurt being organic. So the Evil Yogurt Shop owner responds by suing our client for defamation and interference with prospective economic advantage. Now, in the complaint, Evil Yogurt Shop makes the same crazy argument that since one of its flavors is organic, it can advertise that it serves organic yogurt. And here's a crucial fact for our analysis. Evil Yogurt Shop alleges that all three of the actions taken by our client constitute interference with prospective economic advantage. In other words, he said our client interfered with Evil Yogurt Shop's business by reporting the zoning violation, by reporting the misuse of the seal of approval, and by passing out the flyers claiming that the yogurt shop is not really serving organic yogurt. Those are the facts as presented to me and as alleged in the complaint. So here's the question for today's podcast. Can we successfully respond to the complaint with an anti-slap motion, or will any anti-slap motion be excluded by CCP section 425.17? The relevant subsection of 425.17 provides, and I'm going to paraphrase here to keep it from getting too boring, The anti-slap statute does not apply to any cause of action brought against a person primarily engaged in the business of selling or leasing goods or services arising from any statement or conduct by that person if both of the following conditions exist. So so far, the the, the rule is pretty simple. The anti-slap statute does not apply to just about any business because most businesses are going to involve goods or services. So the anti-slap statute does not apply to a business if the following two conditions exist. And the statute refers to this as two conditions, but as you'll see, there are actually far more. Number one, the statement or conduct consists of representations of fact about that person's business operations, goods, or services, or a competitor's business operations, goods, or services, and the conduct or representation of fact is made for the purpose of promoting the person's goods or services, or the statement or conduct was made in the course of delivering the person's goods or services. And then there's the second condition. The intended audience is an actual or potential customer, or the audience are those who are likely to repeat the statement to an actual or potential customer, or... The statement or conduct arose out of or within the context of a regulatory approval process, proceeding, or investigation. That really has nothing to do with this. And then there is this whole exception to the exception when a telephone company is involved, and that's really not important to our discussion. So really just the first two. It has to be the intended audience is an actual or potential customer, or the audience are those who are likely to repeat the statement to an actual or potential customer. So can we simplify that even further? Well, basically, Section 425.17 applies when one business is talking about another business's goods or services, and the audience that the business is talking to consists of potential customers, and the point of the talking is to promote the speaker's own business. There you have it. That's 425.17 in a nutshell. So let's apply Section 425.17 to our facts. 
was my client talking about another business when he passed out the flyers about Evil Yogurt Shop? Well, absolutely, no question. He was talking about the other yogurt shop. Next element, was he talking about that company's goods or services? Well, that's not really as apparent as it might seem. Yes, he was talking about the fact that the yogurt is not organic, but he was not really talking about the competitor's yogurt when you think about it. He was talking about how the competitor was lying about his yogurt. But let's, let's set that to the side for the moment because I don't think the case will turn on that distinction. So let's, let's ask another question. Did the flyers communicate to potential customers? Again, I think that's without question. A percentage of those receiving the flyers would no doubt be yogurt eaters. So he was communicating to potential customers. And was the point of the flyers to promote my client's business? Now, that's a really interesting point. Remember, the flyers were anonymous. How can Evil Yogurt Shop claim that the flyers were designed to promote my client's yogurt shop when they don't even mention my client's yogurt shop? At best, Evil Yogurt Shop will be left to argue that if the flyers discourage people from patronizing his shop, then those yogurt customers would presumably end up at my client's shop. That's, that's not a very strong argument. But in my opinion, there's a much stronger argument that you've probably spotted by now. However the court may come down on the issue of the flyers, Evil Yogurt Shop is also suing for the report to the city about the zoning violation and the report to the Organic Trade Association. Those are clearly issues involving protected speech. The report to the city is absolutely privileged. And the report to the trade organization is also privileged, although not absolutely, but even Evil Yogurt Shop can never show actionable malice. Even if the report was made with malicious intent, the fact remains that the report was 100% true. Evil Yogurt Shop is not permitted to use the organic seal of approval. Even if the claim is made that the reports about the outside seating and misuse of the organic seal of approval were related to the business, clearly the report to the city and the report to the trade organization were not communications to potential customers, nor did they have anything to do with promoting my client's business. My conclusion, therefore, is that this action is clearly subject to an anti-slap motion, and this could result in an important appellate decision. You'll remember that the court struggled for a long time with what to do when a complaint contains allegations that included both protected and unprotected speech. This case presents the issue of what to do when the complaint makes allegations that fall under Section 425.17 and those that do not. And here's a strategy I may employ when bringing this motion. And this is my super secret patented approach, so just keep it between you and me, okay? Case law makes very clear that whatever you call your motion, that is not necessarily dispositive. In other words, if you bring a standard motion to strike and the court decides to treat it as a motion for judgment on the pleadings, it is free to do so. In one case involving an anti-slap motion, the court decided that the anti-slap motion was in fact barred by section 425.17, so the court decided to treat it instead as a motion for judgment on the pleadings and a motion for summary judgment. As with this case, it was clear that the plaintiff could not state a claim due to the privileges, so the court just reviewed the evidence presented in conjunction with the anti-slap motion and ruled on that basis. I'll put the case in the show notes. Go to californiaslaplaw.com forward slash 008. This case presents a golden opportunity to employ that strategy because of the way it was pled. I can bring this as a special motion to strike and in the alternative as a motion for judgment on the pleadings. But wait, you say. Just as you can't have a speaking demur, you certainly can't support a motion for judgment on the pleadings with evidence. That's what makes this so beautiful. The evidence is already in the complaint. The complaint already alleges that only one yogurt flavor is organic. 
The complaint already confirms that the reports were made to the city and the trade organization. And the complaint even alleges that Evil Yogurt Shop is not authorized to use the seal of approval. Even if the court finds that this entire action is subject to 425.17, which is highly unlikely, it can still dispose of the action by way of the motion for judgment on the pleadings. Now, the court may grant leave to amend the first time around, but I don't care because the plaintiff is bound by his prior allegations. He can't suddenly allege that all his yogurt was in fact organic or that he really did have authorization to use the organic seal. Evil yogurt maker, you're going down. Well, that's going to bring us to the end of another episode of the California Slap Law Podcast. For all your anti-slap needs, be sure to call me at 714-954-0700. That's 714-954-0700. Or you can email me at morris at toplawfirm.com. And be sure to visit me at californiaslaplaw.com. And until next time, have a great week and try not to slap anybody. The evil yogurt maker is represented by an attorney. Let me say that again. The evil yogurt maker is represented by an attorney. I want you to picture that scenario. At some point, Evil Yogurt Maker contacted an attorney, and the following conversation ensued. Hey, thanks for coming in, potential client. What can I do for you? Well, there's this competitor out there who is passing out flyers saying, I'm lying about my yogurt being organic. Well, is your yogurt organic? Absolutely. I serve 14 flavors, and one of them is organic. Well, do you specify that the other 13 are not organic? I don't have to. I just say that I serve organic yogurt. Okay, anything else? Well, yes. I use the symbol that says my yogurt has been approved as organic, and he called that organization that issues the symbol and reported me claiming I never got approval. Well, did you get approval? Hell no, it's too expensive, but but I serve one organic flavor. Okay, anything else? Well, he called the city and told them that I have outside seating that is against zoning. Well, do you have outside seating that is against zoning? Well, not anymore. The city told me to get rid of the outside seating. Can you do anything for me? Absolutely. We'll sue him for defamation and interfering with your business. How does that happen? I I get that lawyers don't always recognize they are filing a slap. That's why I do this podcast, at least in part, hoping I can save lawyers from making that mistake. But pretend the slap law was never passed. My client's conduct was all protected by Civil Code Section 47. Everything he did was privileged. Slap or not, the action was dead on arrival. And since you've stuck with me this far, I'm going to tell you what else the attorney did wrong. This is a very specific tip that I would say 90% of attorneys get wrong when they draft their complaints. So if you understand what I'm about to tell you, you will move up to the top 10% of all attorneys in terms of drafting complaints. And I don't know if they're going to understand this or not. No, they're going to understand it because it's, it's actually pretty simple. Don't reallege every allegation into every cause of action. Let me say that again. Don't reallege every allegation into every cause of action. You've all seen this, and, and you may be guilty of it yourself. You set up some general allegations at the beginning of your complaint, and then you incorporate by reference all of those general allegations into the first cause of action. In the second cause of action, you then incorporate all of the prior allegations into that cause of action, and so on. 
even outside of the slap context, that is just really sloppy pleading. For example, I often see attorneys allege an intentional tort followed by a claim for negligence, and they incorporate all of the intentional acts into the claim for negligence. That makes the complaint subject to demur, and you could lose the negligence cause of action on a motion for summary judgment because, according to the allegations of your complaint, the acts were intentional and not negligent because you incorporated them into the negligence cause of action. Now, in the slap context, this sloppy pleading adds another problem. The attorney in the case we've been discussing created a list of general allegations that included all of the terrible things my client had allegedly done, including the flyer and the report to the city and the report to the organic trade organization. Then he alleged in his claim for defamation that every one of the general allegations was incorporated by reference. So he just pulled the fact that he reported the act to the city, he reported the act to the trade organization into the cause of action for defamation. That means he alleged that my client committed defamation by calling the city and the trade organization. Those are protected activities and cannot support a defamation claim. Moving on, he then sets forth his claim for interference with prospective economic advantage, and he does it again. He re-alleges everything into that cause of action. When you draft a complaint, make every cause of action self-contained. If you want to avoid repetition, then by all means feel free to incorporate by reference prior allegations, but pull them in individually and only if they apply to that cause of action. Well, my after show show is getting as long as the podcast, so with that lesson on pleading, I bid you adieu.